I decided to preach an Advent series of sermons this December. That is an Advent sermon for each of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. I've done this several times before, most recently in 2010, but this may be my last opportunity, and what preacher doesn't take a particular pleasure in preaching sermons apropos Christmas. For my text for this first sermon, I chose one of the most famous in the Bible, just the one verse, John 3.16. And if there is any verse in the Bible that could be preached by itself without careful attention to its context, it is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One comment on that verse is appropriate this morning. The first century Jew had no doubt that God loved Israel. But no one has been able to find a single statement in all the Jewish written materials of the period suggesting that God loved the world. It is a distinctively Christian idea that the love of God is not confined to any nationality or any race or even to any religious community. Most people nowadays assume that God loves everyone. What they don't know is that Christianity alone teaches that God is love and that he loves the world. But now to my subject this morning. It's a question of Christian theology, a much-discussed question, in fact, uh, at least in past days, when theology was more important to Christians than it is today. It's the sort of question nowadays people can think is irrelevant to daily life, a matter too technical, too cerebral, but it is not. It's the sort of question that serious Christians used to think about, and ought to think about today. And if they do, they will find the answer to that question stirring and inspiring and humbling and soul-purifying and confirming. I've entitled the sermon, Cur Deus Homo. It's actually a question. It doesn't end with a question mark because classical and medieval Latin did not use punctuation. There was no question mark in Latin. The question is not, in fact, original to me. Cur Deus Homo is the title of one of the most important works of Christian theology ever written. In fact, one theologian described it as the truest and greatest book on the atonement that has ever been written. The atonement, of course, as you know, refers to Christ's death on the cross for our sins. In English, the title of Anselm of Canterbury's 11th century book would be, Why Did God Become Man? In his very first chapter, Anselm explains why he wrote the book. This question both unbelievers bring up against us and many believers ponder in their hearts. For what cause or necessity Did God become man and by his own death, as we believe and affirm, restore life to the world? When God might have done this by some other means of some, perhaps of some other being, angelic or human, or merely by his will. Not only the learned, 
but also many unlearned persons are interested in this question and want to know the answer. Why did God become man? In other words, why the incarnation? Why the cross? Or in the language of John 3.16, why did God give his only son? That's clearly what gave means in John 3.16. God gave his son to the world by sending him into the world for the salvation of his people. John has already described this coming into the world in the opening verses of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. God came into the world as a man. Why? Why this extraordinary and profoundly world-changing event? This greatest of all conceivable miracles and this deepest of all possible mysteries. That God the Son, the creator of heaven and earth and everything in them, should take to himself a human nature, be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, be born a human baby, and then live a human life. Finally, suffer and die as only a human being could and rise to new and everlasting life again as a human being without ever or in any way ceasing to be God in all the infinity of his divine nature. Why did it happen that the eternal God, while remaining God, became also a mortal human being? As I said, it's an important question. To answer it correctly is is to come very near to the heart of the Christian message. And I suspect most Christians know the answer to the question, even if they've never thought about it in quite this way, never had to formulate an answer to this specific question. But even Christians can wonder from time to time if God couldn't have saved his people in some other way. And there have been Christians through the ages who have thought God could have. He could simply have forgiven our sin without the incarnation, without the atonement. His love and grace are such, are they not, that he could simply forgive us. Wipe our slates clean. We don't require something great of someone before we forgive them, do we? Should we? And if we shouldn't, why should God? Why did God go to such great lengths to forgive us? Why did he require this of himself? Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become a man? In Christian theology, this question concerns what theologians call the necessity of the atonement. Precisely why was it necessary for God to become man and to die on the cross? And Christian theologians have given different answers to that question through the years. They didn't typically deny, some did, but they didn't typically deny that it was necessary for God to become a man, but they explained why it was necessary in different ways. It's fair to say, however, that Anselm's answer to the question, Cordeus Homo, especially once it was perfected by the Protestant reformers, became the standard answer. The answer the largest number of faithful theologians have given, and certainly the unstudied opinion of most devout Christians like yourselves. The reason, simply put, is that that answer seems to be what the Bible actually says, and not just once or twice, but 
time and again, and in many places assumes, as it does here in this best-known and most-loved text of the Bible, John 3.16. Now, it's obvious that the reason Christ came into the world was that God loved the world. That's what John says. It was love that sent God the Son into the world, or as the hymn writer has it, love that came down at Christmas. But to say that is not to answer our question, cur Deus homo. Why did God, loving the world as he did, have to send his Son into the world? Love was the reason for the Incarnation, but why was the Incarnation necessary? Was there no other way that God's love for us could have been fulfilled or could have been expressed? No other way by which he might have secured our salvation. As Anselm himself put the question, is not the omnipotence of God everywhere confessed? How is it then that God had to come down from heaven to vanquish the devil? In other words, if God can do everything, couldn't he have done this, our salvation, in some other way? Remember what the incarnation means. God the Son became a man, yes, but then he lived as a man incognito, unrecognized as God by virtually all men, so much so that men not only did not recognize him as God, many of them didn't even think he was a good man. And then he died in ignominy and terrible pain. The incarnation cannot ever be understood apart from its purpose, as the angel told Matthew, as we read earlier in the service, he came to save his people from their sins. And Jesus himself would later say, the Son of Man came, that is to say, came into the world, not in order to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The incarnation was not an end in itself, God becoming man. It was a means to an end, so that a man, a God-man, might die on the cross for our sins. So the question, Cordeus homo, why did God become man, is actually the question, why did God become a man so that he might suffer and die on the cross for our sins? This is what John says here. God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And of course, John is going to say a good many more such things along the same line in his gospel. We're going to overhear the Lord Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He had to be a man to be the shepherd so that the shepherd could lay down his life for the sheep. Why did God's love require that God the Son should become a man to suffer and die for the sins of men? That's the question Anselm was asking when he wrote Cur Deus Homo. Why this ineffable mystery of God becoming a man and why the terrible suffering that ensued on the cross? In Christian theology through the ages, the answer to that question has been answered, or the answer has come in two different forms. The first answer, given by such notable theologians as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, goes in Christian theology by the name of hypothetical necessity. That is, the incarnation and the atonement, or the cross, were hypothetically necessary. That is, God might have forgiven 
he might have saved us in some other way without Christ's suffering on the cross, without his death, without his resurrection. He might have accomplished our salvation in some, by some other means, but God chose this way, the way of incarnation and the way of the suffering and death of God the Son, because in his wisdom he judged it to be the best way. It wasn't the only way, it was the best way. It was the way that produced the greatest advantages for us and displayed most magnificently God's love and God's righteousness, God's justice and God's wisdom. God could have saved us without the Son coming into the world, without the Son dying on the cross, but this is how he chose to save us. So incarnation and atonement were necessary only in the sense that God in his wisdom judged them to be the best way to save his people from their sins. The principal reason why they answered the question that way, Cordeus homo, was to defend God's omnipotence. Since all things are possible with God, so the argument goes, he could have secured our salvation in some other way. The other answer, the one I want to commend to you this morning, is that God, having in love decided to save his people from their sins, had to save them in the way in which he did. There was, in fact, no other way in which he could deliver us from sin and death apart from the incarnation of God the Son and his suffering and death on the cross. That is, the incarnation of God and his death on the cross were not hypothetically necessary, they were absolutely necessary. And this is the doctrine of the absolute necessity of the atonement. This conviction has also had its able defenders among the great theologians of the church, among the church fathers. Irenaeus, already in the second century, taught the absolute necessity of the atonement. Anselm was its champion during the medieval church. And most of the great Protestant theologians have held to this view as well. Now, we have to be careful here. When we say that God had to save us in this way, by the incarnation and the cross, we're certainly not saying that God was subject to some rule or some law outside of himself. There can be no no rule or law outside of God. What made the incarnation and atonement absolutely necessary was precisely God's own nature. His perfect holiness, justice, wisdom, goodness, love. The necessity, the absolute necessity, results only from who and what God is, the kind of person God is. That's how Anselm himself made the argument for the necessity, the absolute necessity of the atonement. If anyone imagines, he says, that God can simply forgive sin in the same way that we forgive others, Anselm says he has not yet considered the seriousness of sin. And of course, in this, Anselm has the Bible on his side. There is an absolute antithesis between God and sin. We forget this, we ignore this, but the Bible tells us it is so. He hates it, the Bible says, every day. All the attributes of his character are offended by our sins. He must punish them. He cannot accept the validity of sin in his universe as if Satan had equal rights with himself. 
And lest you wonder why this should be so, consider this. Sin is more than simply an attack on God's honor or a violation of his law. Sin is an assault on the very idea of right and wrong, of morality, of the, dis- of the difference between good and bad. If God were to ignore or wink at sin, at the violation of his goodness and his justice and his love, and his truth, if he were to excuse the wrong that human beings do, sweep it under the rug, as it were, the whole moral order upon which we depend in this world would collapse. Nothing is wrong, nothing is evil, if there is no consequence, no punishment attached to it. The entire moral universe in which we live would become meaningless if sin were not punished in the nature of the case, if sin did not pay a wage. We bear witness, you and I, to the essential connection between retribution and morality every single day we live with all the thoughts we think and the words that we speak in judgment of other people. Sin would cease to be sin, wrong would cease to be wrong if the one committing the sin or doing the wrong was not liable to some punishment for having done so. The distinction between right and wrong ultimately depends upon the reality of punishment and reward. After all, what would it mean to say that something done by a human being was wrong or was evil if it weren't to be answered with an appropriate and equivalent punishment, some consequence from which human beings recoil. Sin, Isaiah reminds us, has made a separation between us and God. It must, because our sin is an offense to his very nature and being. He recoils from it, and that recoil, his separation from from us on account of our sin, is the punishment of sin, the due consequence of the wrong. And we are like God in this way because we are made in his image. We expect, we demand that wrong be punished. We may be hypocritical in making that demand. We may often have very faulty opinions about what is sinful and how it ought to be punished, but that wrong behavior ought to pay a wage is something every human being thinks to the bottom of his being. It's one of the deepest convictions of human life. But stop and think, that conviction depends absolutely on the existence of a holy God who punishes sin and who has imprinted his nature upon ours. If God were to fail to punish sin, if he were to be careless about the consequences of doing evil, if he were to tolerate bad behavior, if he were not to recoil from it, what would it mean to say that something, that anything, was sinful or wrong or evil? Take a current example. We are, as a society, passing through an unprecedented paroxysm of anger and disgust directed at public men, politicians, film and television stars, and sports figures in particular, who have been exposed as abusers of women. 
Day after day, someone else hits the news. Men are losing their high-profile jobs, are being shamed in the press, ridiculed by the late-night comics, are seeing their carefully manicured reputations reduced to tatters. They must face a future defined by public disgust. That's sin, and that's the punishment of sin. But what would happen instead of being, if instead of being fired or humiliated, or saddled with the reputation of a pariah, the society, the media, and the public were to say, who really cares? Who are we to judge? Or worse, one man's behavior is as good as another's. What would happen if no one lost his job, no one lost his reputation, no one was exposed to humiliation or alienation? for doing what they had done. First, the victims themselves would have been entirely abandoned and their sense of violation trivialized. It would have been their fault for having complained. They would, in effect, be judged small-minded to expect others to respect their persons, their bodies, or their personal space. They would have been the ones punished rather than the ones sinned those who sinned against them. Sin always does harm. We know that. So who would it harm if the sinner himself were not punished? The victim, of course. She's the only one left. And then society as a whole, as it dealt with the result of the aftermath of the disappearance of any meaningful distinction between good behavior and bad behavior. More than that, the entire Society would soon descend into moral chaos because nothing would be wrong any longer, at least in any meaningful sense. What does wrong mean, after all, if such behavior is accepted, in effect approved, or even forgiven without consequence? There have been times and places in human history when the distinction between right and wrong has been virtually abandoned in a society, and those have been the darkest moments in the history of human life. If you and I are deeply offended when a criminal escapes punishment, when he flaunts the law, suffers no consequence, if we punish our children for their their misbehavior, How much more would the holy God feel the offense of sin, which, we being his creatures, is an attack on him? Where does this moral consciousness come from? Where this connection between evil and retribution, except from God? Evolution certainly doesn't explain it, as the NYU philosopher Thomas Nagel admitted to the consternation of his atheist fellow travelers in his recent book, Mind and Cosmos. But if this universal human conviction comes from God, then surely God himself, his very nature, his character, explains why sin must be and will be punished. Therefore, to deny that God must punish sin is to deny the very nature of God. It's also to deny the very nature of sin, which no human being has ever been capable of doing. Not one. 
That's why, as we read in Hebrews chapter 9, God's people were long schooled in the principle, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God's very nature is holy, is just. His position is the author of goodness and the avenger of evil. His role as the judge of all the earth, defender of righteousness, made it necessary that he punish sin if he were ever to forgive it. Because of God's transcendent holiness, he hates sin. Hating sin, he must deal with it in justice. That's why the law of God demands that those who violate God's law and so sin against God and against man are subject to a curse. Curse is simply another word for punishment, are subject to punishment. This principle is key to the entire explanation of salvation in the Bible. The sinner is subject to punishment, and so forgiveness absolutely requires punishment. God himself told us that, and God cannot lie. If, we're, if we are cursed for our disobedience to God, then somehow, in some way, that curse must be removed if we are ever to be made right with God. The logic of the gospel. That was Anselm's argument. It would violate God's very nature to treat the sinner as if he were not a sinner, to ignore the wrong that had been committed against both God and man, to allow his majesty to be violated by his own creatures with impunity. For this reason, we are told repeatedly in the Bible that God will not clear the guilty. If anyone is to be saved, therefore, he must first be made not Guilty. How? But by the sacrifice, the vicarious sacrifice of God the Son himself. Now, it may seem presumptuous for men to say that there are things that God cannot do. It was the confession of God's omnipotence that lay behind the answer, hypothetical necessity. But it's only to confess God to be God that we say, as the Bible teaches us to say, that God cannot lie, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, that he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, that he cannot look upon iniquity, which is to say he cannot be indifferent to it, that he cannot give his glory to another, that's Isaiah 42 verse 8, that he cannot dwell with the wicked, that's Psalm 5 verse 4, that he cannot allow himself to be defamed. That's Isaiah 48, verse 11. These divine cannots are simply the inevitable implications of God's nature. Were he to be able to do such things, he would not be God. That's the idea that lies behind the intriguing statement in Hebrews chapter 9 that the Levitical sacrifices of the Old Testament were designed according to the heavenly pattern but that the heavenly things themselves had to be purified by better sacrifices than those. That is, the nature of God himself required that Christ, the God-man, suffer and die on the cross to secure salvation. The heavenly things, that is the holiness, the justice, the goodness of God, required an infinite and perfect sacrifice that no mere animal and no mere human being could ever make. In the entire passage 
In Hebrews chapter 9, the problem is our guilt as sinners. And the solution, the only possible solution, is the sacrifice made on our behalf in our place by the Son of God. How, Paul asks in Romans chapters 2 through 5, could a holy God acquit or justify the ungodly? Would that not be unjust of him, dishonest, a travesty of jurisprudence? And the answer Paul gives to that question, as you know, is that Christ's sacrifice, his death in our place on account of our sin, served to satisfy the justice of God perfectly, completely, and made it possible for God to be at one and the same time just and the justifier, the forgiver of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The cross made it possible for God to forgive our sins without violating his own holiness. The cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love. We know that from many passages in the word of God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But would the cross be the supreme demonstration of God's love if it weren't actually necessary? And why propitiation? Why the turning away of God's wrath by sacrifice if that were not necessary? The incarnate God dying on the cross was the only conceivable means of satisfying divine justice. Only the incarnate God could die for the sins of the whole world and only by dying could he satisfy the requirements of divine justice, offended as it had been by the sins of the entire human race. The simple fact is that such a tremendous thing that was done, that God himself should come into the world as a man, live incognito, suffer terribly, die on the cross, that such a thing unprecedented, stupendous, mysterious was done is proof enough that it had to be done. There was no other way to remove the guilt of sin and to deliver us from death to eternal life. Only a man could die. Only the God-man could die a death sufficient to atone for the sins of the entire world. And so that was what was done. And why was this done? John tells us. Because God so loved the world. We forget this, you and I, all the time. Days on end. Weeks on end. We forget this. We take it for granted. But it is the most remarkable fact about you. By far. The most remarkable fact. It is a fact that absolutely transforms the meaning of your life. The significance of your, of your existence. God, who made heaven and earth, so loved you that he was willing to make the greatest conceivable sacrifice to deliver you from the sins and the death into which you had so willingly pitched yourself. Would you surrender your only child to humiliation and death to save somebody else? God surrendered his beloved son to save a world full of his enemies. Selfish, petty, 
egotists like you and me who've left behind years of bad behavior. That's love we can scarcely conceive. Christ was sent, Christ came for you that you might live with God forever. Astonishing. And if that's true, and it is, clearly it's the single most significant fact about your life. It's the thing you ought to be remembering and thinking about and pondering and applying to your life every single day, every single hour of every single day. If the greatest thing that was ever done in the world was done because God loves you, then your life, your very self, must be an extraordinarily great thing. In October of 1996, a service was held in St. Martin in the Fields Church in central London to celebrate the life of the English novelist Kingsley Amos. During the service, Amos's son, Martin Amos, a novelist in his own right, told of a conversation his father had once had with the Russian novelist Evgeny Yevtushenko. Yevtushenko, perhaps assuming that all Englishmen were Christians, asked Amos if the rumor he had heard were true that he was an atheist. Well, yes, said Kingsley. But he then added, but it's more than that. I hate him. Forget for a moment the delicious logical inconsistency of a man who hates a person whom he doesn't believe to exist and concentrate instead on the brute fact that Jesus Christ divides the human race into two communities, those who love God and those who do not. There is no third class of human beings. As one theologian put it, the cross of Christ is man's glory or it is his final stumbling block. If the incarnation and atonement of the Son of God are anything, they are everything. You either love God for his great love and sacrifice for you, or you hate the very idea that something so so stupendous would have to have been done to save you from your sins. No human being can really believe that God loved us and gave himself for us and not love God in return. So say to yourself right now, in your heart of hearts, say to yourself right now, I love God because he first loved me. I love the Son of God because he gave himself for me. I do and I always shall. Amen.